And Jesus went on to say, in a little while you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? And because I'm going to the Father? And they kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. And Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. And so he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn whilst the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. And so with you. Now is your time of grief. But I will see you again. And you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. And in that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Though I've been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the father on your behalf. No, the father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the father. I entered into the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. And then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you now believe? Jesus replied. The time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered each to your own home. You will leave me here all alone. Yet I'm not alone. For my father is with me. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, great to be with you again. Why don't we pray as we come to God's word? Father in heaven, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for the promise, Lord, that when your word goes out, it will not return to you empty. It will accomplish the purposes for which you sent it out. And we pray that those purposes this morning will be to bless and to bring great joy to your people. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen. 
Well, this morning we come to the end of our little series in John's Gospel, a series that we called Comfort for Troubled Hearts. And if you remember, this series began back in chapter 14, verse 1, with those lovely words of assurance on the lips of Jesus. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You see, the underlying current of these few chapters is the departure of Jesus at the end of John chapter 13, Jesus broke the news to his disciples that he was about to leave this world and return to his Father in heaven. And it was news that caused great uh, discomfort and confusion and concern for his disciples there. Their hearts were troubled. And so in response, Jesus spends a lot of time over these next few chapters helping his disciples understand that it's actually for their good that he's going away. And that good, I think, can be summarized in two main ways. Firstly, the departure of Jesus brings hope. You see, Jesus is returning to his Father by way of the cross. And it's at the cross where Jesus died for sin. It's at the cross where the wrath of God was satisfied. And it's at the cross where wonderful forgiveness was extended to people like us. The departure of Jesus was a good thing because Jesus was going to the cross to open up the gates of heaven. Secondly, the departure of Jesus brings help. It brings hope in salvation and it brings help in the person of the Spirit. We saw that last week in chapter 16, verse 7. Have a look down if you would. Very truly I tell you, it is for your good. It is better for you, says Jesus, that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus says it's better if I go. Why? Because only then will the advocate come. The great gift of God's spirit from heaven to come and live in our hearts, to be with us and to help us. He will give us the strength to continue. He will give us the, the grace to bear. He will give us the boldness to speak and he will produce the fruit of Christ's likeness in our lives. The departure of Jesus is a good thing because it brings hope, the hope of heaven, and it brings help in the person of the Spirit. But as we come to the end of chapter 16, Jesus has one more thing to say concerning his departure and it's there in verse 20. Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. You see, the disciples needed to realize that what was about to happen was going to be incredibly painful. The departure of Jesus will bring grief, but that grief will soon turn to joy. And as we read in verse 22, it's a joy that cannot be taken away from us. You see, there's moments in life when we will feel happy. Happiness that comes maybe from a particular situation or circumstance. But of course, when that situation changes, how quickly that happiness can disappear. Well, that sort of happiness, 
The happiness that comes with a, with a situation or a circumstance is nothing like the joy that Jesus is speaking about here. This is a joy that will never fade away because it's a joy that comes from seeing Jesus, verse 22. So with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Your grief will turn to joy. And this morning we're going to unpack that little phrase, your grief will turn to joy under three main headings. Firstly, we're going to think about the time frame. When will Jesus, or when will the, the disciples' grief turn to joy. It's going to happen. Jesus promised it. But to which events is Jesus referring? Secondly, we're going to ponder that picture in verse 21 that Jesus gives, the picture of a, of a woman in childbirth, a picture that helps us understand that transition from grief through to joy. And then lastly, we're going to look at the conclusion in verse 33, words that conclude not just this last section of chapter 16, but everything that we've looked at so far in these last few chapters. So if you put your Bible down, now is your opportunity to pick it back up again and turn with me to verse 16 in a little while. Jesus went on to say, in a little while you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me again. Verse 17, at this, some of the disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying in a little while, you'll see me no more. And then after a little while, you'll see me. Verse 18, they kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. And they're not the only ones. Commentators have, have debated and discussed these words for centuries. What does Jesus actually mean when he uses that phrase, in a little while? Well, look again at verse 16. In a little while, you will see me no more. Jesus is going somewhere, so they're not going to see him anymore. And then after a little while, you will see me again because Jesus is coming back. So to what events is he referring? Is he speaking about his death, his going, and his resurrection, his coming back? Is he speaking about his ascension, his going to heaven and the coming of his spirit, Jesus coming back in that sense? Or is Jesus looking even further ahead to his second coming and that great reappearing at the end of time? Well, given what we've looked at over these last few weeks, I think all of those interpretations are possible because all of those different realities are in view. Jesus has spoken about his death. He's spoken about his resurrection. He's spoken about his ascension to heaven. He's spoken about the coming of his spirits. And he spoke about that great and glorious day of his return when he will come back to gather up all those who are his. So maybe we shouldn't even be trying to pin Jesus down to a specific time frame. Maybe all those things were in Jesus' mind when he used that phrase, in a little while. And that may be so, but given the immediate context and what we actually see in this passage, I do think Jesus has something specific in mind. He's pointing in a particular direction, and that direction is towards his death and his resurrection. And I say that for three main reasons. Firstly, the timing of these words. If you remember, it's the Thursday night. These words were either spoken around the table at the Last Supper, 
or even on the way from the Last Supper to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus would be arrested and dragged away to be crucified. In a little while, you'll see me no more, says Jesus. I'm going to be taken from you. And it's about to happen. Secondly, we need to understand that true Christian joy isn't just something we will know when Jesus returns on that final day. It is a present reality. The disciples did not have to wait until heaven to experience the joy that Jesus speaks about here. When Mary saw the risen Jesus in the garden, she was filled with joy. When Jesus broke into that locked room and appeared to his disciples after his resurrection, they were filled with joy. Your grief will turn to joy when? When you see Jesus again, when you see me risen from the dead. And then thirdly, that of clarity. Have a look at verse 23. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. That day in verse 23 is the day when they see Jesus again. And as we read, that will be a day of clarity. No more questions. All these questions of the disciples, all the things they didn't understand. No more questions. Because the disciples' confusion in verse 18 is to be replaced with clarity in verse 23. Do you remember that moment for Thomas? When he stood before the resurrected Jesus, John chapter 20, verse 27, we read this. Then Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. All that confusion, all that misunderstanding, all that uncertainty evaporates in the blink of an eye because Thomas sees the resurrected Jesus. It all becomes clear at the resurrection. And now with all that background in place, come with me, if you would, to verse 20, because here we have the final piece of the jigsaw. Very truly, I tell you, says Jesus, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. It's another reference to the death of Jesus. The world will rejoice when Jesus dies. Yet at the same time, the death of Jesus would be incredibly painful for his followers. You will grieve, says Jesus. When the world rejoices at my death, you will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Why? Because Jesus will not stay dead. Our joy will be complete, for we will see him face to face. You see, the joy that Jesus speaks about here isn't like the, the momentary pleasures that this world offers. It is a joy that we can know today, and it's a joy that cannot be taken away. And it's a joy that will increase exponentially when Jesus comes again. Firstly, then, we have the time frame. Jesus speaking primarily about his death and resurrection. Then secondly, Jesus gives us this picture to help us understand the transition from grief to joy. Have a look with me at verse 21 and 22. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, 
Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. What a magnificent picture that is. For those of you who've had the privilege of seeing the birth of a child, you'll know how fitting that picture is to help us understand what's going on in verse 20. The time of labor, so I'm told and so I've seen, is incredibly painful. Because of uh, the imminent arrival, God willing, in our family, I was chatting to uh, another lady in the church recently about birthing plans. And she said on her birthing plan for a second child, she only wrote one thing, which was this, do not take away my gas and air. Obviously, the first delivery was pretty uh, painful. So the only thing she wanted was to have that pain relief for her second child. The labor is incredibly painful, but verse 21 when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. When you look at the new life that is in your hands, at the incredible gift that God has given to you, the gift of life, all those hours of anguish are so quickly forgotten. Your grief will turn to joy. And this is the picture that Jesus uses and gives to his disciples to help them understand what is about to happen. Verse 22, so it is with you, says Jesus, now is your time of grief. Now is your time of anguish. I'm about to be taken away and strung upon a cross and it will be incredibly painful, but I will see you again in brackets when I'm risen from the dead and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. What a brilliant picture that is to describe the emotional journey of the disciples over those few days. But before we move on, there's something else that we must see in this picture. You see, it's not just that, that pain is replaced with joy, but that pain becomes joy. The very thing that caused the pain will become the source of joy. Can you see that in the picture? During labor, it's a child that brings the pain and it's a child that will cause the joy. The same thing that causes the pain brings the joy. And so it will be for the disciples. It is the cross that would cause their pain. Yet it's the cross that would become the source of their everlasting joy. Why? Because it's at the cross that sin was dealt with. And it's the cross that we are restored to a right relationship with the God of heaven. And when the disciples saw the resurrected Jesus, it all became clear. The cross was no longer a symbol of defeat, but a symbol of victory and the source of everlasting joy. And so my question for all of you this morning is this. Do you know that joy? Do you know the joy that Jesus speaks about here? the joy of being forgiven, the joy of being loved by our Father in heaven, the joy of being indwelt by his Spirit, the joy of eternal security that comes not on the basis of our performance, but on the basis of the performance of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Do you know that joy today? And for those who are listening that are maybe yet to trust in Jesus, a follow-up question for you. Are you still chasing the momentary pleasures of this world? 
because if you are pleased, know this, in the end, they will leave you empty. Totally empty. Only Jesus can deliver deep and lasting joy. And for those of you this morning who already trust in Jesus, I wonder, is the joy being spoken of here something that you are experiencing in your life today? If not, then please accept the challenge and the call this morning to closer communion with Christ. You see, it's easy to miss on first reading. If we break down these chapters into little chunks, we can miss it. But if you read through John chapter 14 to 16 in one go, you will see it again and again and again and again, how central prayer is to a life of joyful communion with God. And it's there again in verse 24. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Ask God and he will give and your joy will be complete. Ask God for joy. Ask him for strength. Ask him for grace. Ask him for patience and forbearance to, to press on through these difficult days that we are living through. And as you do, please know that you have an incredibly generous Father in heaven who loves you immensely and he promises to give in order that your joy might be complete. You see, of course, as Christians, we can abuse a text like that. Jesus isn't saying that he's just going to give us anything that we ask for. It's not like the, the heavenly vending machine that you put your money in the slot and you say your prayer and you get your gift. That's not what Jesus is saying here. But he is saying that if you ask for anything in my name that will bring glory to God and joy to his people, then our generous Father will give it to us. I think for most evangelical Christians, the issue isn't that we abuse a promise like this. The problem is that we fail to believe it. We fail to ask God for joy and therefore we fail to receive. I'm going to read to you now from this little book uh, called A Call to Prayer by J.C. Ryle. And I think what he says here is particularly significant given the, the promise in verse 24 and the context of our time. So let me read these few words to us. I ask lastly whether you pray, because prayer is one of the best means of happiness and contentment. We live in a world where sorrow abounds. This has always been its state since sin came in. There cannot be sin without sorrow. And until sin is driven out from the world, it is vain for anyone to suppose that he can escape sorrow. Some without doubt have a larger cup of sorrow to drink than others, but few are to be found who live long without sorrows or cares of one sort or another. Sicknesses, deaths, losses, disappointments, partings, separations, ingratitude, slander, all of these are common things. We cannot get through life without them. Someday or other they find us out. The greater are our affections, the deeper are our afflictions. And the more we love, the more we have to weep. And what is the best means of cheerfulness in such a world as this? How shall we get through this valley of tears with least pain? 
I know no better means than the regular habitual practice of taking everything to God in prayer. And so he continues, Jesus can make those happy who trust him and call on him, whatever their outward condition be. He can give them peace of heart in prison, contentment in the midst of poverty, comfort in the midst of bereavements, joy on the brink of the grave. There is a mighty fullness in him for all his believing members, a fullness that is ready to be poured out on everyone that will ask in prayer. Psalm 50 verse 15. Call on me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you. Psalm 55 verse 22. Cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. Philippians 4 verse 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, present your request to God. And the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The only way to be really happy in a world such as this is to be casting our cares upon the Lord. Or as Jesus says in verse 24, ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. We thought about the time frame that's in view, the death and resurrection of Jesus. We thought about that beautiful picture of childbirth to help us understand the, the transition that the disciples were experienced from grief through to joy. And lastly, we come to his conclusion in verse 33. Have a look down. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. As we said at the beginning, these words don't just conclude this final section. They act as a conclusion to everything Jesus has said in chapter 14 through to the end of chapter 16. And here Jesus returns to the, to the comfort, to the peace that can be ours in times of trouble. And there's two things that I would love us to see in this verse. Firstly, this isn't a peace that we get through retreating from times of trouble. It is a peace that we can experience in the midst of our trouble. We're not talking here about retreating to the lakes or some sort of holiday paradise to run away as if we can run away from the troubles of our life. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is actually promising something far greater, which is the experience of peace in the midst of trouble. And that's a promise that still stands today. Trouble is a reality, but so is peace for those who trust in Jesus. Secondly, it's a peace that comes from knowing that Jesus is victorious. Take heart, says Jesus. I have overcome the world. Now, those are remarkable words, aren't they? Especially given the context of those words. Remember, it's the Thursday night. The very next day, Jesus is about to die on a cross, yet he can still say in the past tense, I have overcome the world. So clear was Jesus, so confident was Jesus in what his death would achieve that he can speak of victory before it's even happened. 
And now, of course, we have the privilege of looking back on all that Jesus has done, his death and resurrection, the victory that was fought and won at the cross. And at the same time, we can look forward to his glorious return from heaven when he will deliver us from this trouble-laden world and take us into the trouble-free new creation. The only question that remains for us is this. When that day comes, when Jesus returns in glory, will you be standing with him? Because if you are, then on that day, you too will overcome. John makes that clear in his first letter, 1 John 5, verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world? Answer, only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And so I wonder, can you put your hand on your heart this morning and say that I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that he died and rose again for me. And I believe that one day soon I will stand with him in glory, in the new creation, in that wonderful, trouble-free world. Let me give you a moment to consider that question, and then I'm going to pray for us before we sing again. Father in heaven, we thank you for that promise that Jesus leaves us with. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Father, how we pray that each of us would know that peace, that we might know the joy of sins forgiven, that we might carry around the hope of heaven in our hearts, that we might know the presence of your Spirit in our lives. And Father, for any who are yet to believe, we pray that this morning might be a good time to consider afresh what Jesus has done for us. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Father, we praise you that these things are so. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.